Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Peter Tatchell, one of the UK's great civil rights activists, talking about his protests in Qatar ahead of the World Cup there and a new documentary chronicling the highlights of his career as a protester called hating Peter Tatchell, heaven forbid. Before that, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper, which features content that you can't read anywhere else and the best of our online offering as well. There's no billionaire in the background telling us what to say, no oligarch, no hedge fund. We rely entirely on people like you to support our free and fearless journalism. So please subscribe if you can. You get more details over at our website, bylinetimes.com. Subscriptions start from as little as £3 a month. That's over at bylinetimes.com. Welcome then to uh, Peter Tatchell. And Peter, there's a lot to talk about because you've got this Netflix documentary, but I want to talk about the most recent protest first in Qatar. And you were certainly arrested in Qatar. I don't know if you were detained as such, but just tell us why you felt moved to protest there and take a considerable risk in a country where homosexuality is illegal. I wanted to shine a light on the human rights abuses in Qatar, particularly against women, LGBT plus people and migrant workers. I did not want to see this World Cup go ahead without human rights being highlighted. Qatar wants to keep the focus on the football I want to keep the focus on the human rights. And that's why I went there and protested outside the Qatar National Museum on a very busy road and junction point where thousands of Qataris saw me hold a placard with the words, Qatar arrests, jails and subjects LGBTs to, quote, conversion. That's a reference to the fact that in Qatar, there are secret gay conversion centres where LGBT plus people can be held against their will and subjected to abusive attempts to turn them straight. Do you have any idea of the size of the LGBT plus community in Qatar? And did people there reach out to you? I've got no idea because there's never been any survey. And of course, LGBT plus people there would be too fearful to identify themselves. For a starter, a person who is LGBT or even just perceived to be LGBT can be harassed and interrogated, perhaps even arrested by the police walking along the street or going shopping in a mall. On top of that, the Qatari police use online entrapment via gay dating apps where they lure gay people to rendezvous and then arrest them. There are also honour killings by families of LGBT plus kids. And these are never investigated by the Qatari authorities. The perpetrators are never brought to justice. On top of that, the maximum penalty for both female and male homosexuality is three years imprisonment, although it can be extended to seven years if it is deemed to have brought dishonour to the family or community. In addition, as I mentioned, LGBT plus people can be detained in these secret gay conversion centres, which Qatar hushes up and keeps hidden away from public view. I met a young gay man who went through one of these centres. 
he described it as a form of psychological and religious brainwashing. He was so traumatized by the experience and by the general homophobia in Qatar that he eventually committed suicide. That's how bad it is. There is an argument that having the World Cup in Qatar and opening it up to tens of thousands of visitors, some of whom will be LGBT, perhaps forces that society to address things that otherwise it would choose not to confront. Well, when Qatar was given the World Cup, FIFA said it was on the condition that Qatar would reform. But I've got to tell you that in the last 12 years, there has not been a single reform on women's rights or LGBT plus rights. There have been some reforms in terms of conditions for migrant workers, but still many of the families of the six and a half thousand migrant workers who've died since 2010, many of those families say they are still waiting for compensation. Migrant workers say they still complain of often unpaid wages, being forced to live in overcrowded slum hostel accommodation, and often being denied permission to change jobs to escape abusive employers. So not a lot has been delivered. In fact, very, very, very little. The World Cup has not been an agent for change. What happened to you when you were arrested there were fears that you might perhaps be put in jail for a while but I guess that politically that would have been very difficult for the Qatari authorities to do for any length of time so what did happen to you? Well I've got to be honest I was terrified you know I've heard the stories of people who tried to protest and got badly beaten up and end up spending quite a while in prison you know I was afraid that that might happen to me My hope was that having a British passport and being in the run-up to the World Cup when the Qatari authorities sensibly do not want bad publicity, that that would give me some degree of protection. And that is indeed what happened. I was held for nearly an hour and subjected to very intense interrogation by a combination of Qatari police and state security officials. This was on the pavement where I did the protest. I wasn't taken to a police station or put in the cell. And it was only after nearly an hour that having consulted higher up, the people holding me uh, eventually said that I was free to go back to the airport, get on a plane and leave the country. So on on all that time, I was not free to leave. I was being detained against my will. You know, I was incredibly thirsty. It was a very, very hot day, nearly 40 degrees. Uh, I was dying of thirst. Uh, There was a water uh, cellar uh, just 20 feet away. They wouldn't even let me go and walk over there to get a bottle of water. And then you were put on a plane, presumably, and deported from the country. Well, deported. I went voluntarily on their advice to the airport and got on a plane to Sydney. So, you know, I was not frog marched to the airport. I wasn't detained at the airport. But I do have to tell you (laughs) that when I got to the airport and was going through immigration security again, as you do when you go to board a flight, I was still very nervous that 
in the time that I'd been released down in central Doha to the time I got to the airport, that some higher ups in the Qatari state may have countermanded the order to release me and that even then I might be detained. It wasn't really until I got on the plane and was in international airspace that I felt safe and was able to relax. I mentioned this documentary, Hating Peter Tatchell, which is available now on Netflix. When did your career in protest start? Well, a very, very long time ago, (laughs) as in once upon a time. I was 15, way back in 1967, in my hometown of Melbourne, Australia. So I've been doing human rights campaigning now for 55 years. During that time, I've been involved in over 3,000 protests. I've been arrested about 100 times. I have been subjected to horrendous levels of death threats and hate mail. And I've actually been physically violently assaulted over 300 times. But I'm still here, and I intend to carry on for another 25 years. To me, human rights are universal. They are for everyone on this planet. For us here in Britain, in the United States, in every country on the world, all people deserve dignity, respect and equal rights. In your lifetime, Peter, in the UK, we've moved from the legalisation of homosexuality to gay marriage. Do you feel that we should take pride in how far we've come or disappointment at how far we still have to go? Well, of course, the full decriminalisation of homosexuality only happened in England and Wales in 2003. Back in 1967, it was a partial, limited decriminalisation. In fact, most aspects of gay male life remained a criminal offence on the statute books under the heading, quote, unnatural offences. And in the years after 1967, more gay men were arrested and convicted than the years immediately before decriminalisation. So it was a very checkered experience. But, you know, we do now have the right to love who we wish, providing we're adults and with consent. But there are still battles to fight. We're still a huge struggle to secure dignity, respect and rights for trans people. We have a Gender Reform Act, which was legislated in 2004, which was progressive at the time, but now is a bit out of date and old fashioned. It's very cumbersome, slow and bureaucratic. We need to get that reformed. We need to get it modernised, like has happened in many other countries. Even today, of course, about a third of all LGBT plus people in Britain have been victims of homophobic, biphobic or transphobic hate crime. And in our schools, nearly half of all pupils have been victimised because of their sexuality or their gender identity. So quite clearly, there is progress still to be fought for and won. But we have made big progress, and I want to pay tribute to all the many unsung, unknown LGBT plus people and our straight friends and allies who've made that possible. We have moved mountains, but there's a few more mountains to climb. In the film, there's a moment where you 
invade for want of a better word, a service being given by the Archbishop of Canterbury calling for gay marriage. And in an interview, he says, Peter Tatchell is a bullying kind of chap who tries to get his own way. Well, of course I do. When human rights are being challenged, threatened and abused, we have to challenge those who are responsible. And the Archbishop of Canterbury, then Dr George Carey, he was arguing at the time that LGBT plus people were not entitled to equal human rights, that discrimination against us was justified. For eight years, we had tried to get a meeting with the Archbishop. He wouldn't meet us or anybody from the LGBT plus community. So that is why myself and members of the LGBT Direct Action Group Outrage went to Canterbury Cathedral in 1998 and called him out during the service. We did not interrupt the sacred parts of the service. We were peaceful, brief and polite, but we made the very simple point that discrimination is not a Christian value. What I delighted in seeing when the Netflix film Haley Peter Tatchell was finally completed was that George Carey, when interviewed, revised his view. He actually said that rather over the top, I think, that I exhibited Christ-like qualities and that history would judge me as being on the right side. Now, that's very generous of him, given that he was somewhat embarrassed, even humiliated, by my intervention in the cathedral back in 1998. You have suffered for your art, as they say. There's one very graphic moment where you're socked in the mouth in Moscow, I mean, a, a really heavy punch that clearly connects. And as you've described, there are many more instances like that in your career. What is the, the most frightened that you have been, Peter? Well, first, let me say, I've never wanted to be violently assaulted. <laughs> you know, that's never been a, a choice or an option or a wish. But I have been very badly beaten, particularly by President Mugabe's bodyguards in Brussels in 2001 when I attempted a citizen arrest on the Zimbabwean president on charges of torture. I was actually beaten unconscious in broad daylight in front of the world's media by his bodyguards. Uh, and then again in 2007 in Moscow, as you mentioned, I was again very badly beaten by neo-Nazis with the connivance of the Moscow police and riot squad. <laughs> you know, after I was beaten, <laughs> I was arrested and my perpetrators were allowed to walk free. But, you know, what's happened to me is nothing by comparison to what has happened to far braver human rights defenders in countries like Russia, China and many other places around the world today. I'm guessing, though, at the start, when you talked about becoming aware of these issues at the age of 15 in Australia, you kind of set out to have a career as a civil rights activist, as a gay rights activist. At what point does this work actually become your life's work? Well, of course, initially, I just did it as a sort of part-time evening and weekend campaign. But I got very good at it. And uh, people would say, oh, that was very successful. Why don't you have a go at this? So 
back in Australia, I was campaigning against the death penalty for Indigenous Aboriginal rights, against Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War, and then also in the early days for LGBT plus freedom as well. It only really became a full-time vocation, I suppose, in 1983, after the ill-fated Bermondsey by-election, when I was the defeated Labour candidate. Most commentators describe that election as the dirtiest, most violent, and certainly most homophobic election in the latter half of the 20th century in Britain. Am I right in thinking that you lost to Simon Hughes in that election? That's right. That experience was so traumatic. You know, I'd had 150 violent assaults during that election campaign alone. It was so traumatic that that prompted me to think, well, look, you know, now I am a national name. I have a public profile. I want to use this to champion not just LGBT plus rights, but all human rights. So I've been doing it as a full-time, mostly unpaid career (laughs) since 1983, a long stretch. So I've been doing it now for almost 40 years. And as you say, mostly unpaid. So how have you survived? I used to do bits of freelance research and journalism. For about 30 years, I lived on five, six, seven thousand pounds a year, which was pretty tough in London. And, you know, I can remember in winter, you know, not being able to afford to turn on the heating. And I'd wander around my house, my little flat, you know, wearing two pairs of trousers, three pullovers, a woolly hat, (laughs) gloves. But, you know, I loved the work I was doing. My passion for human rights kept me going, despite the difficulties and adversities. I think it's fair to point out, isn't it, that Simon Hughes has since apologised for his treatment of you in 1983. But that was a period when the right-wing press was in its pomp. You were vilified in the national papers. This went beyond a local election campaign in one constituency in London. Yeah, I mean, the newspaper Gay News described what happened to me as the most sustained vilification of any gay public figure since Oscar Wilde. (laughs) That gives you a flavour of of how bad it was. But it wasn't just over my homosexuality and my support for LGBT plus rights. It was also about other things I stood for, which are now mainstream. You know, I argued for a national minimum wage, and that was denounced as extremist. They said, you're bankrupt business. I argued for a negotiated political settlement in the north of Ireland. And I was told I was an IRA supporter. But of course, the Good Friday Agreement did exactly the same thing. I argued for a comprehensive anti-discrimination law to protect every person against discrimination. That too was seen as over the top and extreme. But we now have it with the Equality Act of 2010. Did you ever think, well, Maybe I should try again for Parliament then and maybe try and bring about change in that way rather than putting yourself in situations where, unfortunately, you've been physically attacked. I did think about having another go at Parliament, but I think I'm just a bit too radical for Labour, which is the party I stood for in 1983. And also, I kind of think that maybe 
working outside of Parliament, I've had greater freedom to champion causes and put energy into campaigns that I wouldn't have the time to do if I'd been a member of the House of Commons. You mentioned earlier, Peter, these enforced conversion centres in Qatar. Where are we at with the ban on conversion therapy in England and Wales, which seems to have been in the air for ages, but doesn't appear to have materialised yet? You're right. Way back in July 2018, the Conservative government promised to ban conversion therapy. Yet here we are getting on for four and a half years later, and we're still waiting. Now, earlier this year, during the prime ministership of Boris Johnson, it was announced out of the blue that the whole plan to ban conversion therapy was going to be shelved. There was going to be no ban at all. Then, in response to the outcry, the government rethought and came back with its commitment to ban conversion therapy, but only for lesbian, gay and bisexual people, not for trans people. And that is where we still are today, still waiting, still being strung along by a Conservative government that made a pledge four and a half years ago. So what do you make of the fact that the ban on conversion therapy hasn't been introduced and that even if it were to be introduced, it would exclude trans people? Well, it's pretty inexplicable as to why the government won't legislate. There are lots of other countries and state jurisdictions like the state of Victoria, Australia, that have model legislation that could easily be lifted and adapted to the UK. It would require very little legislative redrafting. So the reason for the delay is very, very inexplicable at one level, but obvious at another, because the Conservatives have been waging a culture war, particularly against trans people, over the last two years. And conversion therapy seems to be a victim of this culture war. I was going to ask you about that, Peter, because in your lifetime, to be publicly, outspokenly anti-gay is not a position that you can take and survive for very long if you're any kind of public figure. But to be anti-trans, or as trans people would perceive it anyway, to be anti-them, seems to be entirely acceptable it is absolutely shocking the way in which trans people are being demonized it has echoes of the way in which lesbian gay and bisexual people were demonized in the 1980s it is simply not true that trans women are predators and a threat to other women that's a bit like saying that because a small minority of muslims are terrorists there should be restrictions against all Muslim people. No decent, honourable person would ever dare say that. Yet some of those people are saying that trans people are, quote, the enemy within. And I think that's really, really, really dishonourable to prey on a small, marginalised, vulnerable and discriminated minority. It's just not acceptable. It's just not right. 
to treat the victims of prejudice and discrimination as perpetrators. Has holding that view led to you losing friends? It has. I'm very shocked and quite stunned, to be honest, that I have lost women's rights campaigners who I counted as friends and even some LGB people. They seem to buy in to this anti-trans agenda in a way that's completely incompatible with any kind of commitment to human rights. I'm shocked that many of them make generalized statements about trans people that they would never dare say about black people or Muslim people. It's a demonization that has no basis in evidence. It is based upon hypothetical scenarios or maybe one or two incidents, but you cannot base legislation and policy on what a few bad apples may do. Target the bad apples, yes, but don't demonize and discriminate against the whole community. And that, I'm proud to say, is what is happening to the trans community. They are being vilified and demonized across the board, even though 99.999% of them are totally blameless. The documentary, Peter, is called Hating Peter Tatchell. There's a line in it from one of the contributors describing you as the most disliked man in Britain. Come on, you're revered, you're adored, you're celebrated for your civil rights work. You're not hated. Well, I think I was 30 or 40 years ago. I did shake up the establishment. I did make a lot of bad people very, very angry. Many people who had deep-seated, ingrained prejudices did not like me. They saw me as challenging their worldview. And that did generate a lot of hate, a lot of death threats, hate emails. It's been very, very tough living through that period. But you're right now, things have changed. I haven't changed, but as a result of the work that I and others have done, public opinion has changed. So now, to quote uh, George Carey, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, I'm seen as being on the right side of history. And that is a much more comfortable place to be. But having said that, there is still a very vocal and often very vicious minority who do target me particularly over my stand in support of the trans community, but also when I call out Islamist extremists, some people try to portray me as attacking all Muslims. I'd never, ever do that. I defend the Muslim community, but I do call out the Islamist extremists as I call out all extremists of all hues and persuasions. It's been great to speak to you, Peter. I do recommend that people look up Hating Peter Tatchell, which is available now on Netflix. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast. We are funded by subscriptions to our brilliant monthly newspaper, which is called The Byline Times. If you want to subscribe and it costs from as little as £3 a month, please head over to our website, bylinetimes.com. We'll see you again very soon. Thanks, Peter, and bye-bye now.